Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Christina Skinner, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. We'll be discussing your article, Central Bank Activism, which is forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christina, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Well, it's wonderful to be back on the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Christina, about a year ago, you joined a symposium episode here on the podcast on financial and corporate regulation in the Biden administration, a sort of perspective look at what that might look like. On the panel that you joined, you alluded to the issue of central bank activism, which you've developed in this paper. And I was really excited to see the article that lays out some of those concerns that you talked about on the show about a year ago. So I wanted to invite you to rejoin the show and share some of your thoughts on this topic of central bank activism. I guess, first things first, at a high level, what are the basic roles of central banks? What are their traditional jobs? Where do their mandates come from? And does this vary between the U.S. and perhaps other advanced economies around the world? This is absolutely the right question to start with. We need a baseline, right, when we're considering whether central banks are being pressured to or otherwise you know, deciding to engage in activism. And one thing to appreciate is that central banks, including the Fed, perform many different functions that are pursuant to and constrained by different legal authorities. Similar to many other leading central banks, the Fed has a few main responsibilities. Monetary policy is probably the primary and most well-known duty of a central bank, and that includes the Fed as well. Almost all central banks are responsible for their nation's monetary policy. For the Fed, Section 2A of the Federal Reserve Act sets out this goal in terms of pursuing maximum employment and price stability. Then there are other provisions that basically set out the parameters by which the Fed can use its various monetary policy tools, like buying assets in the open market or lending through the discount window or an ad hoc liquidity facility. So that's monetary policy. Second, central banks, again, including the Fed, are sometimes, but not always, the bank supervisor and regulator. So the Fed has this job, but it does share this responsibility with other bank regulators like the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the FDIC. So in this regard, the Fed is responsible for financial holding companies on a consolidated basis. But it's not always the case that supervision and regulation is a central banking function. So for example, right now, the Bank of England is also a bank regulator and supervisor. But before the crisis of 2008, bank supervision took place in an entirely different entity, the FSA that was outside of the central bank. So it's just interesting to note that there's not only one way to do it when it comes to bank supervision. Then there's financial stability. A lot of central banks are responsible in some capacity for the stability of their domestic financial system overall. It was always assumed that central banks played some kind of financial stability role because they act as lender of last resort, so to speak. But for the Fed, a financial stability role was made more explicit again after the 2008 crisis. And Congress asked the Fed to start engaging in supervisory functions that were meant to be more macro in nature. And the primary tool that Congress gave the Fed in this regard is the ability to engage in system-wide stress tests. But it's important to note 
in comparing different central banks that for the Fed, this financial stability mandate is not, in fact, explicit. So there's nothing in the Dodd-Frank Act and definitely nothing in the Federal Reserve Act that assigns the Fed an express goal of financial stability. And this is really different from other leading central banks like the Bank of England, where the Bank of England Act gives the Financial Policy Committee, which sits within the Bank of England, an express financial stability mandate. We don't have that similar sort of legislative expression in the U.S., and that matters down the road when we think about what the Fed can and cannot do within the bounds of its financial stability mandate. And then finally, I'd highlight for the listeners the central bank's responsibility in the payments space. The Fed is a supervisor of payments systems, and the Fed also operates some payment systems, but it's mainly focused on the wholesale sector, so offering various sort of payment rails for other financial institutions. And this will be an increasingly big issue, so to speak, with the growing conversation around central bank digital currency, so CBDC, because it's not at all clear that the Fed has existing legal authority to create a central bank digital currency that would be available to retail customers, everyday citizens. Big picture, for the purposes of understanding what the Fed can and cannot do, we have to remember that the Fed is an agency. It's an agent of Congress. So it can only pursue the goals that Congress tells it to. But that's very much sort of administrative law and constitutional law speak. But we also have to translate that into central banking law. And when we do that, what it means is that the Fed doesn't have goal independence. So the Congress is setting its goals. And when we're speaking this language of central bank independence, when we say that the Fed is independent, what we're really referring to is something called instrument independence. So the Fed can decide which of its tools, when and in what regard to use in order to accomplish the goals that Congress has set out for it. And the Bank of England is similarly situated. It has instrument independence, but not goal independence. And that's a really important distinction. It sounds like the Fed and other central banks around the world have quite a bit on their plates in terms of the goals that they're mandated to pursue. And I'm sure those goals can sometimes be difficult to square with each other, perhaps. Your article talks about an extension from those goals, and it focuses on a topic you call central bank activism. Before we get into some instances of what that looks like, could you just define the concept of central bank activism for the listeners? Absolutely. The definition I'd offer is relatively straightforward. Activism is referring generally to some central banking action taken in response to a new economic problem for which it lacks an existing statutory mandate to address. Now, of course, that general definition does beg a few questions. How am I thinking about the scope of the Fed's mandate for one? It's true that many of the Fed's mandates confer discretion, but I argue that discretion is not as open-ended as some would argue that it is. There are limits, and it's very possible to draw lines around those mandates, around the borderline of those mandates. One can look at the text of the mandate in the first instance, often this is the Federal Reserve Act, and examine that text in light of historical convention and construction, which itself has usually been a reflection of the mandate's purpose. There are also structural red flags of activism that I point out. Usually activism will involve the central bank taking on some fiscal activity, which is supposed to be the purview of the executive branch, right, of the, of the treasury, not the monetary authority. Or there are cases where the central bank, the Fed, appears to be responding directly to political pressure to stretch the colorable interpretation of a mandate. You identify three areas in which 
central banks are under some pressure to act and under which there might be some central bank activism. Those are helping small local businesses, climate change, and addressing inequality. Could you talk about those forms of potential central bank activism? What are the interventions that we're seeing from central banks? And maybe what are some of the motivations for banks to embark upon these policy areas, which are perhaps a little bit different from their established goals? Is this a matter of banks taking the initiative or is there outside political or social pressure that might lead them toward a path of central bank activism? Absolutely. And we could spend such a long time talking about each of these examples because there's so much nuance, and I'll endeavor to be really concise. At the outset, I think it's important to state that these are all really important issues for society to wrestle with, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're jobs for the central bank. It doesn't necessarily justify the Federal Reserve stretching its mandate or being asked to stretch its mandate. And that's where the rubber really meets the road. And in my opinion, and in my paper focused on rule of law issues and separation of powers issues, Climate change is really the signature issue here, and I have a separate paper that examines in great depth the legal authority or the lack of legal authority for the Federal Reserve to proactively tackle climate change. The context here is that central banks all around the world are being pressured politically and from various popular groups to take on climate change. There is, in fact, a consortium of almost 100 central banks that's called the Network for Greening the Financial System that's dedicated to carving out a role for central banks in facilitating, using their policy tools to facilitate a transition to a low-carbon economy. In general, it's important to appreciate when we're talking about the Fed that the Fed's particular legal authority is quite constrained in this space. And it's easy enough to look around the world and see what the European Central Bank is thinking about doing or what the Bank of England is thinking about doing. But the Fed, again, has its own distinct, unique legal framework that isn't as capacious in regard to climate change as these other central banks. And the upshot of the Fed's legal authority in the climate change space, which I get into in this other work, is that the Fed has very weak authority to try and force credit reallocations toward green outcomes green assets, green companies, and away from brown ones. Now, it does have the authority to react to any manner of financial crisis, including one that could be induced or precipitated by a climate event. And it can consider how climate change could pose credit risks on the balance sheet of banks. But again, it just doesn't have any legal authority to try and offensively tackle climate change and try and move the U.S. economy toward a greener equilibrium. And again, it differs a bit by mandate, right? So there's really no authority in regard to monetary policy to do things like green quantitative easing that other central banks can consider. In the supervisory space, there is some authority, as I said, to think about how climate change could manifest as credit risk on big banks' balance sheet. But there are real due process limits on the Fed's ability to use things like moral supervisory suasion to deter banks from lending to certain companies and not others. And then, of course, the Administrative Procedure Act limits how far the Fed can, for example, increase regulation, increase capital requirements vis-a-vis certain kinds of assets. The big takeaway here is that the Fed has all the authority it needs to react defensively, but it doesn't really have authority to go on the offensive against climate change. And those that would prefer to see the Fed in such a role should be advocating for legislative changes through Congress. The second example that I give is in regard to inequality. 
Again, Section 2A of the Federal Reserve Act, that's that provision and the statute that sets out the Fed's monetary policy goals. It, again, gives the Fed responsibility for promoting stable prices and maximum employment. Now, in recent months, there's been growing evidence of temps or indication that some Fed leaders would consider influencing the path of monetary policy by elevating or expanding the employment arm of that mandate specifically. And the idea would be that if we can stretch the employment arm of the mandate to include questions around inequality, then we might be able to get the Fed to think about using its tools or tinkering with its tools, the deployment of its tools to address issues of inequality. So to give you some background here, the Fed announced a new monetary policy framework called Average Inflation Targeting in August of 2020. What that meant is that the Fed is no longer going to tighten rates automatically when inflation reaches 2%, which is the Fed's target. It's going instead to shoot for a 2% rate of inflation on average. So we'll be able to have some makeup period whereby the economy can be inflationary for a bit longer. The implication, for some at least, is that now there's more wiggle room to try and squeeze more employment out of the economy even if it means letting inflation creep up a bit, and it has. At the time of that transition in August 2020, the employment arm of the dual mandate was described in a new way. The framing of that goal among Fed leadership was one that is referred to as, quote, broad-based and inclusive. Now, this new framing of the employment mandate has subsequently been used by some Fed leaders to rationalize the splintering of the employment mandate to focus on particular geographic and demographic groups that appear not to be faring as well as some others. Now, again, at face value, pondering ways to mitigate wealth inequality is a good thing by any measure. But as a rule of law and separation of powers matter, the question I'm asking is how should we evaluate an effort to use the Fed's power to help some groups over others. Because technocratic central bankers looking for evidence about distributive outcomes sits quite uncomfortably with their apolitical technocratic core. Basic premises of economic policy instruct the central banker to focus on maximizing social welfare, but to stay out of these really thorny questions of distribution. For that reason, employment data has historically been assessed as neutrally as possible using headline rates. And it's a dangerous game to get into the situation where the Fed is essentially thinking about picking policy winners and losers. The Fed just isn't equipped or authorized to do that. And I'll get into that a bit more when I talk about normative questions around legitimacy and unelected power. Then the third example I gave was around small business lending. This was a COVID-era facility, the Main Street facility that was stood up in 2020. And here what we saw was really a new or a reincarnated kind of lending for the Fed, like lending directly to small and medium businesses in the real economy. What's interesting here is that Congress, yes, Congress did tell the Fed to do this in the CARES Act. But in doing so, Congress seems to have changed its mind about some provisions in the Federal Reserve Act without actually amending the Federal Reserve Act. For one, Congress had long ago ditched this industrial lending role for the Fed in the 1950s when it removed Section 13B from the Federal Reserve Act. In retrospect, everyone, mainstream economists at the time, really said this was 13B was a bad idea. The Fed should not be competing with commercial banking in this way. It shouldn't be engaged in industrial lending. It's really confusing the role of the central bank. Also, as my friend Lev Menand has pointed out, Congress didn't formally alter 
the Section 13.3 requirement that liquidity must be provided for, quote, the financial system. We want to watch out for Congress that seems keen to use the Fed as a piggy bank, right, dispensing cash to the real economy in times of economic turmoil. It seems like in this situation, Congress told the Fed to do the work of the SBA or the Treasury. And so Congress has really muddied the waters about whether this is a permanent or temporary suspension of various provisions of the Federal Reserve Act, again, muddying the waters about the role of the central bank. Is this a novel development, these instances of central bank activism that you talk about, or is there historical precedent available? And if there is some historical precedent, are there any learnings from those moments in time for today? The history is really interesting. It's not the first time that we've seen pressure on a central bank to engage in what I'm calling activism. But it's arguably much more dangerous and problematic now because the Fed is so much more powerful than it ever has been before. And so the Fed's power in this climate is a very valuable thing for interest or popular groups to capture. Generally speaking, history has not looked kindly on attempts to politicize the Fed or to draw it into these issues of credit allocation. And I go through three examples in the paper and try to give you the highlights here. So the first example is the first and second banks of the United States. These banks essentially were set up to mix private commercial banking functions with public finance and monetary control functions. They competed with state chartered banks and controlled credit conditions in ways that helped their stockholders. This private credit allocation essentially created these really pernicious conflicts of interest in the banks that became ammunition for their opponents that really despised their monopolistic control over money. And the ghost of these banks hover over a Fed that leans into credit allocation, right? Deciding which businesses or sectors of the economy are able to get favorable credit conditions and which aren't in ways that look politicized or unfair. Now, fast forwarding to the 1920s era, then we saw some experiments to finagle discount window policy, which were also problematic for the Fed. So these were efforts to set collateral conditions on banks in an effort to try and deter discount window lending that would then eventually be used to finance stock market speculation. There's growing concern about growing stock market bubble in the 20s. These efforts were very short-lived because they were politically nuclear, caused tremendous problems for the Fed in Congress. And the lesson here is that even when the Fed has some discretion, as arguably the reserve banks do in regard to their own collateral policy, what collateral they'll accept in regard to in connection with loans through the discount window, it still might not be politically advisable, not great for the reserve bank's reputation for sector neutrality. The final example is the 1970s. So in the 1970s, we saw a Fed that was quite responsive to popular sentiment and the president in ways that resulted in a sort of jerky monetary policy that swung like a pendulum between accommodation and tightening. The lesson from that period is that the Fed is supposed to be tied to the proverbial mass of macroeconomic technocratic decision-making for good reason. Monetary policy that reacts to popular pressure is generally not healthy for the economy over the longer run. Normatively and maybe pragmatically, how should we be thinking about central bank activism? You've talked about some of the democratic legitimacy perspectives, but what might be some of the consequences 
for central bank activism that we want to be aware of or perhaps even weary of in terms of that democratic accountability or perhaps competing with central banks' other policy or economic mandates? It's a great question. Why do we care? What's the problem, right? And you can see how many people would be listening to me and thinking, won't the ends justify the means here, right? If the Fed can push us to a greener equilibrium, would that be? And I do think there are very real normative considerations to push back against that view. First, if we live in a world where the executive or Congress, for that matter, can pressure the Fed to stretch its mandate, to act beyond it, there are manifold economic ramifications, including but not limited to inflation, distortion of credit pricing, and the misallocation of credit. And those are eventually all very costly for society as a whole. Second, there's this critical legitimacy question about how large a role society wants for a central bank that's governed by unelected power. These are big-time institutional and democratic legitimacy questions. The Fed isn't in charge of contested value judgments about who wins and loses in the economy. And if it were, then Fed governors would need to run for office. Society needs to be able to trust that the Fed will wield its expert hand to make apolitical decisions and let democratically responsive institutions decide the tricky and subjective values-laden questions. Finally, there is a specter of a central bank leviathan. If we're pushing and pushing the Fed to do more and more, to solve more and more problems, then this puts the Fed on a path of tremendous growth that we might not ultimately be very happy with. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the paper? And are there open questions that you hope to tackle in the future? I think there are four key takeaways blend together from my prior answer where I left off in talking about a central bank leviathan. And the first key takeaway for the listeners is about the size of the Fed. There are a lot of important economic issues, trade, immigration, economic relations with China, really weighty and important economic issues, but they aren't all for the Federal Reserve to incorporate into its mandate, let alone without congressional instruction. The second key takeaway surrounds this notion of gridlock and this reference I made to expedience and a question of whether ends can justify the means and thinking about how to interpret the Fed's mandate. It's a very dangerous game when we start trying to end run around Congress. There is a lot of pressure on the Fed to tackle these various social or economic justice questions in very big ways. But whether the Fed should push the bounds of its mandate raises very difficult questions for American democracy today. Rather than seeking to work through our institutions and drive compromise, do we want to force change extra legislatively? Is that something that society really wants to start doing? And then third, and relatedly, this is a slippery slope. What cause will the Fed champion next with its mighty power? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. A president or treasury secretary should not be shaping the role of the Fed. That's Fed Independence 101. We do need to be mindful of how political pressure can make Fed policy swing like a pendulum. And once presidents or treasury secretaries get a taste for influencing Fed policy, that's the end of Fed independence. And it becomes very hard to start drawing lines. And we get into a world where the Fed is directed or influenced by the president or treasury to favor some sectors over others. It's not only anathema to what a U.S. central bank should do. Again, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And it's good to remember that. And then finally, there is a really challenging balance to be mindful of between delegation and discretion. 
we don't want to bind the Fed in times of crisis. The Fed needs to be adaptive and agile and nimble in times of economic crisis. But we also need Congress to be disciplined in the way that it delegates power to the Fed. And in terms of open questions for future research, this is going to be something that Congress and the Fed as an institution will need to balance the need for discretion, but the need to be mindful about specific delegations. And I mentioned central bank digital currency at the beginning of our conversation. And I can very much see this issue coming up as Congress considers whether to give the Fed responsibility for something like a central bank digital currency, whether to give the Fed something else to do and for what purpose. Our guest today has been Christina Skinner, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. We've discussed her article, Central Bank Activism, which is forthcoming in the Duke Law Journal. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christina, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.